Lord, we give you thanks for your abundant goodness to us, and we give back to you now our tithes and our offerings with grateful hearts, desirous to please you, knowing that you you don't need anything that we give, but you call us to give as cheerful givers out of delight for all that has been given to us. And so we pray that you would now take these and use them to accomplish all of your good purposes for which you've intended them and bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, and we are going to finish Revelation before Advent, just in time. We're going to have to work at it, but we're going to get it done. Revelation 20. This is God's Word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would open our eyes now to see the beauty and the wonder and all that you intend for us from it. Help us to understand. Give us wisdom. Open our eyes afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I mentioned that we would finish before Advent, which means we're not making very much progress today, just six verses. But there's a reason, and I see the chuckles already, why you know we're only taking six verses today. And I will go ahead and tell you that these six verses are jam-packed, and we're going to have to work very diligently to get done, and I'll go ahead and tell you I won't be done on time. Why? I won't go that long. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, It's not just it's jam-packed. This is probably one of the most contested passages in all of Revelation in terms of what it means. And it's not just about the millennial views, but it's about the timing and the order of what John is seeing and describing here in Revelation. And so in order to understand, I'm going to take just a minute to begin with, and this is going to feel a little bit more like a classroom for just a minute to get kind of a foundation laid for what, uh, what, what the various millennial views are. Now, often when people come to Revelation, they think of the millennium, and they ask questions like, are you premillennial, are you postmillennial, or are you, are you amillennial, or some version of those? And you might be surprised that we've gotten all the way to Revelation chapter 20 before we're really getting into 
the beginning of that answer today. Well, the phrase, a thousand years, as we read it this morning, is in these six verses five times. And you know from previous sermons that any time we see something repeated a number of times, we know that's what we're supposed to zero in on. And so this is clearly uh, something important here. There are three main views of the millennium. And I want to describe them briefly to you, give them a little bit of history at the outset, so that as we dive into the text, there's some framework. The premillennial view holds that the thousand-year period described here occurs after the return of Christ. In other words, uh, the, the return of Christ is pre-the millennium. That's, that's where the name premillennial comes from. And this view purports that after Christ appears, there will be a period of time, and some understand this period of time to be a thousand years as symbolic of a period of time, not literally a thousand years. Others understand it to be literally 1,000 years or 365,000 days. And in this time, Christ will rule on the earth, and all of this precedes the final battle that we've already looked at, known as Armageddon or the great day of God. This view holds that the vision that John is describing in chapter 20 follows chronologically after what we saw in chapter 19. And so this is, it's understandable why you would come to that conclusion, except that we've already seen a number of the other pieces of the vision not follow chronologically. So it doesn't necessarily have to, but that's where part of that view comes from. During this time, this millennium, described by some as a golden age, Dennis Johnson explains, believers who will have received their new sin-free and curse-free bodies will have returned with Christ to earth and will rule with him. Because of Christ's rule on the present earth during that time, much, though not all, of the curse against human sin, injustice, violence, disease, sorrow, death, will be radically suppressed." Now, within the premillennial camp, there are two divisions. There is historic premillennialism, which has been around for a long time, and dispensational premillennialism, which has been around for a shorter period of time. The dispensational view grew out. It's, it's rather young. It came on the scene in the mid-1800s, but it actually, the teaching goes back to the 1500s. And it emerged from a group of Jesuit Catholic priests who began writing in response to the reformers, who most of whom took the historic view of Revelation, and they were ascribing various things that happened that we've already seen, the seals, the bowls, the trumpets, to things that had already happened in the Roman Empire leading up to the Reformation. And you understand as we've looked at the whole of Revelation, that that becomes a little bit challenging because you run out of events. Uh, because now... Christ has tarried over 2,000 years. But one of the things that they were up against was they saw the Pope as the Antichrist. And so this, this group of Jesuit Catholic priests wanted, some, they wanted a different you know, eschatology that didn't have the Pope as the Antichrist. Well, these writings were not popular. They weren't picked up. They kind of remained hidden until the mid-1800s when they were picked up by a man named John Darby and then popularized in the 1900s by Schofield and Ryrie. In more recent times, this view has been prominent among evangelicals based on the book The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey and the Left Behind books and the movies that came from those. The view differs from historic premillennialism in a number of ways. We don't have time to unpack all of that. Uh, but this is the one view that would be out of accord with our system of doctrine. 
And what I mean by that is if you go to various PCA churches, you would find people that are historic pre-mill, you would find people that are post-mill, which is the next one, and ah-mill, but you wouldn't find any that are dispensational pre-mill. I'm speaking here of officers in the church. That doesn't mean that we don't have members who have those views or regular attenders who have those views or that those are not welcome here. So please don't hear me say that. In fact, many dear brothers and sisters in the faith hold this view. And it is not a reason for separation or to break fellowship. I have heard it pointed out, and I tend to agree, that if John MacArthur, a dispensationalist, and R.C. Sproul, a covenant theologian, could have maintained such a warm friendship throughout the years until Dr. Sproul died, then any of us can get along who have differing views on these issues. Okay? Now, one more thing. Historic premillennialism, and yes, I'm going to butcher the words, I'm sure, throughout the morning. Uh, historic premillennialism has been around throughout the, uh, much of the church, of church history, but it would exclude a number of the dispensational elements that came along after in the 18 and 1900s, including the secret rapture of the church uh, before the second coming and the distinction among the people of God made between Israel and the church. Those are probably the two key issues that would set that apart. Postmillennialism is the view that holds this thousand-year period occurs before the return of Christ. So the return of Christ is post the millennium or after the millennium. It sees the church's influence through the gospel as growing over time to create, as Johnson explains, an overwhelming fruitfulness of this evangelistic advance in the salvation of individuals and the transformation of cultures, countries, and world civilization as a whole, all before the physical return of Christ. As a vast majority of the world's population become Christians, families, societies, and nations are transformed by disciples of Jesus who honor his lordship over every dimension of life, public and private as well. And after this, Christ will return to consummate the kingdom and judge all. So the post-millennial view says things are going to get better and better, that Christianity will influence uh, families and neighborhoods and cities and countries and regions around the world, and things will improve, and then Christ will return. The third main view is amillennialism. And amillennialism understands the thousand... Oh, by the way, postmillennialists, most of them see the, the thousand years as symbolic uh, as well. Um, and it has to be uh, because it's been more than a thousand years already and Christ hasn't returned. So that, they're kind of cornered into that view. Um, and amillennialism, uh, the view is understood to be symbolic uh, of, of the church age. That is... The millennium began at Christ's first coming and ends at Christ's return. And like most numbers, characters, and items in Revelation, John's vision of these is symbolic of real things to come. So we're not talking about allegory, okay? This is not, I mentioned this last week, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It teaches a fictional story that teaches us true things about something. This is not that. This is symbolic, so it's symbols, and we recognize Revelation is filled with symbols, okay, that John sees in the vision, the symbols point to real things that are to come. And so this is true of this number as well. The number, of course, is the perfect number 10 cubed. And so it's this idea of a perfect amount of time. It is an amount of time that is set and determined by God. But as you might imagine, no man would know the time because no man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. So we don't know the length of this time. 
During the millennium, in the amillennial view, we see Christ reigning, as do his people with him as priests, which 1 Peter 2.9 tells us and explains what the priesthood looks like. Now, this is kind of quoting from Exodus. This wasn't a new idea among the people of God, but 1 Peter, this is a well-known passage, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the reason I'm reading that is because it speaks directly into our understanding of the timing of this passage that's before us today, that we have been made priests for a specific reason. It is not an honorary title. You know what honorary titles are, right? When schools give honorary doctorates, they give a piece of paper that someone is a doctor and they haven't earned it. They didn't do the coursework. This is not an honorary title. We have been made priests for a purpose. And that purpose is not only in 1 Peter, it's spelled out very clearly for us there, but we'll see it in our passage this morning as well. So our role in reigning with Christ now is through the work of the gospel, proclaiming his excellencies in his church to serve him in his purpose that, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. What comes before the end? A proclamation to all the nations. Did we see the word nations in our text this morning? Yes. Do we see it implied in First Peter, the proclaiming the excellencies of God? I would argue yes. Now, no matter what your view on the millennium, and please hear me, these are important issues, yes, but they are not essential issues. They must not be divisive among us because we can all, all of us can confess, as all believers have for 2,000 plus years, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. We all have quoted that, the Apostles' Creed, and we can all agree to that regardless of our millennial view. So please do keep that in mind as you interact with others who may have different ideas and understandings about what the millennium looks like. Now, look in verse 1. And it begins with John seeing in the vision an angel coming down from heaven. And the first question that we need to ask is the timing of this, because it's important to how we understand all of chapter 20. Does the vision that John is seeing in verse 20 follow chronologically after what we just saw in chapter 19, which was the judgment of the beast and the false prophet? As we have seen throughout Revelation so far, John writes the visions he sees as he sees them. So he's writing them down, he's recording them as Jesus revealed them to him. Yet, as we have seen, that order has not always been chronological. And one example of this is in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Now, not everyone holds to the view that these are parallel accounts of the same events. But hopefully you've seen from my arguments how they do actually line up. They match up. And so one example from the seals would be the sixth seal in Revelation 6. That fits together rather well. Um, That is clearly portraying the end. The sky rolls up as a scroll. The stars fall from heaven. It is called the great day. 
which we see Armageddon, the final day, the great day of our God, attributed to. So if all of Revelation was revealed in a way that is to follow chronologically, then Revelation would only be six chapters long. That would be the end. Jesus would be back at that point, would come back at that point in, in the seventh. That's what we would anticipate. And then judgment and the end, new heavens and new earth. But as we saw with this, the, the seals or the, the, the trumpets and the bowls that follow, we saw the events repeat. So it is at least possible then that it is not chronological, but we still can't be sure yet. Um, so we need to look again a little closer. And one of the things that we would consider is John's language. And one of the things that's interesting that may not jump off the pages to you, but I encourage you to go back and look at these. You can write down these references. Every time John speaks of an angel appearing from heaven, it refers back to a time preceding that passage and what it's describing. This is true in seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, and chapter 10, verse 1, and chapter 18, verse 1. And so we would at least anticipate the possibility that the timing here precedes it. So we know it's possible from Revelation 6, and we know that it's not only possible now, it's likely from the, the way that John uses the visions of angels appearing from heaven and, that are coming with a power. In every case that he uses that, it refers back to a preceding time. Now... In the previous chapter, we saw the judgment of the beast and the false prophet, the emissaries of Satan. And I mentioned last week that Satan's turn was coming for his final judgment. This isn't it, but it's coming. It's still in this chapter. If you peek down, it's actually in the next passage in verses 7 to 15. How do we know this is not the final judgment? Well, I just told you it's in verses 7 to 15. But there's some other clues here as well. And one of the clues is in verse 3. It says that Satan is to be released. So this is describing something else. This is not Satan's final judgment. Another clear indicator is the fact that Satan is not here cast into hell. He is chained in the abyss. So this is clearly not the final judgment. John is taking us back. And one of the clues... I would say the, the prominent clue is this that we've just mentioned, the fact that Satan is not cast into hell, but he's chained in the abyss. When was Satan bound for a limited time, and what other scripture speaks of this? Now, I speak a lot of Satan being on a chain. You've heard me say that. I don't know where I picked that up. I've, that's probably been in my vocabulary for longer than I can remember. We understand that Satan is in some sense, not just under the sovereignty of God, but that there is some limiting sense. But we don't talk about this a lot. So I want us to run through a few passages that make it clear that Satan is on a chain. In Matthew uh, chapter 12, Jesus is, in, a, in essence, defending his work to cast out demons. The, the religious leaders challenged him on this. And Jesus says to them, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? He's speaking of casting out demons. So who's the strong man? We understand it to be Satan. This is Matthew 12, 29. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus greets the 72 whom he had sent out. They come back. <clears throat> and the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Huh? <laughs> That's what Jesus said back to them. The 72 come back and say, even the demons. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now this was prophesied in Isaiah 14 verse 12. 
And we talked about this when we were in Revelation 12, specifically in verse 9, that Satan fell from heaven. Something changed. Something has happened in history that has altered the way Satan functioned before a time and now during the present time. And Paul helps us here. And speaking of Christ's death and resurrection, in Colossians 2.15, Paul writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So when did everything change? On the cross. Everything changed on the cross. Now, we talked about the fact that Satan was not able to come and accuse the brethren in the same way that he had. He's still the accuser of the brethren, and he's still at that work. But before, as we saw in Job, he had some kind of access to the throne of God. And we can imagine what his his accusation would have been. Hey, 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 there's no atonement for these people's sins. These sheep and these lambs and and all of the... No, 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 that doesn't count. That doesn't count. But after Jesus died on the cross, and it did count, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, Satan can no longer stand before him and accuse us like that. His accusations are minimized. The power of his... Now, we know it doesn't feel minimized to us, does it? Because we feel his accusations all the time. And he still remains an accuser of the brethren. But something changed on the cross. Revelation 12, we looked at this with considerable, we gave consideration to this. There are a number of parallels. Go back this afternoon, read Revelation 12. A number of parallels between Revelation 12 and 20. Christ's first coming, his death and resurrected, changed things. His inauguration of his kingdom then redirected the course of history. Whereas Satan had ruled the world and deceived the nations, except for the nation of Israel where the hope of the gospel lay in seed form in the promises of the prophets, whereas Satan had access to the throne to accuse the brethren like we saw with Job, Christ's first coming changed everything. Why? Because the strong man was bound. The cross defeated him. He is still at work. I'm not minimizing the work of Satan. And we've already seen how Satan works. He works through his emissaries. Okay, We don't know if the false prophet and the Antichrist are on the scene yet, but we know the spirit of Babylon throughout the age is at work. And we've talked about that extensively. That, that, that Satan is at work. This is not minimizing it, but it's helping us understand that it, is, it has been minimized. So chapter 20 then is taking us back to the first coming of Christ, the coming of the kingdom of heaven. We know Satan is described as a lion who seeks to devour, that he's at work in the sons of disobedience, that he's at work in this present darkness, but his work is limited because he is bound. He's on a chain. And the reason for this is given in our text today. John gives us the qualifier of the symbolic language of a chain that's being used here to accomplish something. Look in verse 3. It is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Why have we been made a kingdom of priests? To proclaim the excellencies of Him. What did Jesus say would have to happen before His return? That the gospel would have to go to the nations. So what does Satan want to stop? The proclamation, that by deceiving the nations, the proclamation of the gospel. And what we're being told here, what we've been told in all those passages that I read, is that God has ensured that Satan will not deceive the nations to prevent the gospel from going forward. This doesn't mean that he's not a deceiver. 
This does not mean that he's not at work. This does not mean that we won't face obstacles. We know all of that is true. What I'm trying to help us see is that the outcome will remain unchanged. The outcome is sure. Christ will accomplish his church, the building of his church, the establishing of his kingdom. It will prevail. The kingdom, of, the, 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 the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing will stop what Christ is doing. We're told that he will be released for a short time. This will come at the end. And we know already what he intends to do because we've already seen this earlier in Revelation. What does he intend to do? He's going to gather the rulers and the powers with the beast and the false prophet. He's going to mount an attack against the lamb and the people in this great battle that is to come. What the battle looks like, I don't know. It may involve some kind of warfare. It may look different than any of us can imagine, but it is going to be some kind of real battle. And this is why I have argued throughout our study of Revelation that there is this increasing intensity as we come to the end, this ramping up of things, that as the end approaches, things are going to get worse. The world and all of Satan's followers are going to think they are winning. Believers... And Christ's church will appear to nearly be defeated. And then the Lamb returns. Right when it looks like everything is over. Right when it looks like all the armies of the world are against, uh, against uh, gathered against the, the Lamb and His people. The Lamb shows up. And how will He defeat Satan and the false prophet After all of this, we saw this last week. John told us, Paul told us, how will they be defeated? By the Word. By the Word of God. And that's why we sang this morning, one little word shall fell him. What it will look like, I don't know. But the encouragement that John is recording here to give hope to these seven churches to whom this letter was written is exactly what they needed to hear and it's exactly what we need to hear in our own day. No matter what we see happening, Christ is coming. And He's coming as victor over Satan and sin and death and will vindicate all who have trusted in Him. We have a sure hope. We have a firm foundation that cannot be shaken no matter what the storms of life bring because we know He is faithful and true and that He will do all that He has promised and He will come back and redeem the broken world. Now looking in the next section, verses 4 to 6, and here we see people on thrones, we see beheaded souls. Something is unique about this. Beheaded souls, what does that mean? Well, clearly, it's not bodies, or John would have written bodies or people. It's beheaded souls. It's a reference to Daniel 7.22. And the intention here is to show something uh, about the location. Now, we could look at other references to thrones in the book of Revelation. And if we did, we would see that all thrones that refer to Christ or His people sitting on them are all in heaven. But, but it's, it's, it's added to that this is a picture of heaven in the fact that we see beheaded souls because that would be the only place we would imagine seeing the souls of people. John sees them in this vision. They have been beheaded. And then he goes on to add that it's not just those who were martyrs, but all who have remained true to the name of Jesus. And they are pictured here reigning on thrones with Christ. This is a view into heaven. 
And we see here the benefits of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is simply what all of us have experienced in being raised with Christ in our salvation. And it will be realized when we die in that we won't die, but we'll go to heaven. We'll die physically, but we will immediately, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't go to some intermediate state. We don't go to sleep. We are with the Lord. And not only are we present with the Lord, but we're seated with Him in power and in judgment. Ephesians 2.9, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He wrote it past tense to make us sure that, that He was sure that this is what would happen. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. And so we will reign with him then, even before our bodies are physically resurrected in his second coming. John calls this the first resurrection, and he ascribes the beatitude of blessed to those who have received the first resurrection. This is explained not only in this Ephesians 2 passage, we see it in Colossians 3.1 and Romans 6.4. Yes, we eagerly await the resurrection of our bodies. We long for that day, the physical resurrection, when our bodies are glorified. But we already enjoy the benefits of this first resurrection. Having been made alive in Christ... We are called new creations. We have been told that we have already been raised up with Him. We have already been brought from death to life. We have already been filled with the Spirit of the living God. And because of this, the second death has no power over us. The second death, we understand, is the final death in judgment. All of us will die once, unless Christ returns. No one escapes that. We all get to die. Yet those who are by faith in Christ will not die again because we will receive the first resurrection. And so if you have never put your trust in Christ, let me encourage you that Jesus stands ready to save. The first death might be scary for many reasons. But the second death, the final death, is what is truly concerning. This death is the judgment that we saw of the false prophet, that we saw of the beast, that we will see next week of Satan, and all who reject Christ. This is eternity in hell. So do not wait and do not be deceived. Today is the day of salvation. Here, these words of comfort expressed by C. Clements, a minister from the 1800s, they who are the Lord's rise twice and die but once. They who are not the Lord's rise but once and die twice. In verse 6, we see not only that we don't have to worry about dying, but that we are now reigning with Him in this millennium until Christ returns. We have been made priests to our God, just as Revelation 1, 5, and 6, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. We are promised to reign on the earth, Revelation 5, 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Revelation 3.21, we've been promised a seat on the throne. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. So how do we then understand this current reigning on earth? We see the reigning in heaven, and we kind of get that, right? We understand that once we are, are after we die and we're, we're no longer in this earth, that we're, we're, we're 
we're glorified, we, we've, we've, you know, um, uh, sin is, is raised, we're with Christ, we get that. What does it look like for us to reign now? Well, the reason, as we've said, Satan is bound is that he may not deceive the nations. That's what verse 3 tells us. And we saw this in Matthew 24, that the nations have got to hear the gospel. It's got to go to the end before the end come, the end of the earth before the end comes. While Satan is still a deceiver, and he still works effectively through his emissaries, as we've seen throughout all of Revelation, especially the spirit of Babylon, he will not be able to thwart God's plan of redemption. And the focus here then is on the proclamation of the gospel that we are ambassadors or priests. It's, again, not an honorary title. There is a responsibility with this. And this pronouncement of blessing for those who share in the first resurrection, those who have been raised with Christ in salvation, is not only that the second death has no power over us, but that we are priests and reign with Christ. In other words, we have purpose in this life. As long as the Lord gives us breath to breathe, we have purpose, that we might proclaim the gospel, that we might live out the good works that God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We are to reign as His people together in His church through the spiritual authority and power that we are given. What is that spiritual authority and power? Well, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you would know the answer. That spiritual authority and power is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the armor of God. It's praying without ceasing. It is the antithesis to how we, the world understands authority and power. We reign in humility instead of in pride, as the world does. We reign in humility as Christ did in His first coming. We reign in dying rather than trying to live forever as Christ did in His first coming. We reign in giving up our wants and our desires instead of selfishly pursuing them as Christ did in His first coming. We reign in being the church, the body of Christ, by making peace as Christ did in His first coming. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That is what we proclaim. We proclaim His cross. And that cross is a message of peace because it is a message that we can be made at peace with God and at peace with one another. The churches in Asia Minor were suffering already and they were about to suffer more. They needed hope. They needed encouragement. And Revelation was written to encourage them. Had all of Revelation been about events that were not going to even affect them, or been about events 2,000 years later, this letter would have had little meaning to them. But Revelation spoke to them as it was intended to speak about their lives and their experiences. It spoke about their own day right where they were living. And it speaks to us about our own day as well. We need to be encouraged that we would remain faithful and conquer by trusting the one who has conquered. Let me close with this from William Hendrickson. He's writing this about this message, a message that was true for these uh, young churches in Asia Minor, a message that was just as relevant to the Reformers whose work we mark this Sunday, a message given by Jesus through John that is for us in our own day as well. Hendrickson writes about this message. 
Go back to the first century A.D. Roman persecutions are raging. Martyrs are calmly laying their heads under the executioner's sword. Paul had already done this, also James. Rather than say, the emperor is Lord, or drop incense on the altar of a pagan priest as a token of worshiping the emperor, believers confess their Christ even in the midst of the flames and while they are thrown before the wild beasts in the Roman amphitheaters. But Christ is not unmindful of his grievously grievously afflicted disciples. He sustains them in order that they may remain faithful to the end. For that very reason, he gives to his sorely tried church the vision of the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And he describes these souls together with those of all departed Christians who had confessed their Lord upon the earth as reigning with Jesus in heaven. He says, in effect, here below a few years of suffering, there in that better land above, they live and reign with Christ a thousand years. What a comfort. Certainly the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is revealed to the souls of believers reigning with their exalted Lord in heaven. No matter how you understand the millennium, no matter how you understand the unfolding of these events, you can be sure that Christ will return, that He will bring ultimate victory, and we can be sure of the ultimate glory that we will see, that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor entered the heart of man, that it will be beyond our imagination. And so we can sing together, one with himself, I cannot die. Blessed are all who have received the first resurrection. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. We will reign with him, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you cause your word to penetrate, to give us hope, to encourage us as you intended, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would conquer by trusting in the one who has conquered, that we would remain faithful to the end. That no matter what difficulty or even persecution we may face in this life, that we would remain true to the one who is faithful and true. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us and made us your own. Cause us to persevere. Keep us. Protect us. Lead us on, O King, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response before the throne. It's in your supplement.